0: I'm Steve Glaveski, and this is Venture Backed. Welcome to the show, Jason. Thanks for having me on. That's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show, and you're joining me all the way from sunny Chicago, Illinois. It is sunny today, which is unusual. <laughs> <laughs> Ma'am, whenever I think Chicago, I think back to the 1992-93 NBA season, Jason. For whatever oh, reason, I decided to follow the Phoenix Suns, and I've been suffering ever since the Bulls <laughs> beat us that year, 4-2 in the finals. Absolutely oh, heartbroken. I was nine years old at the time, and I still remember crying on my bed and my sister making fun of me, so thank you very much. <laughs> we kicked a lot of ass in that era, and we're, we're paying for it now because we suck. So Yeah, you know, well... It happens. Good. (laughs) Um, Jason, so you and uh, your CTO at Basecamp, David Heimer's new book, It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work, came out last month. Um, And I know you've called this book the spiritual follow-up to your first book, Recode, from 2010. But firstly, man, congratulations on the book. The Economist has called it the best thing on management published this year.
1: Thank you. Thank you. We're really proud of it and really happy with it. And we think it's a really important, timely message. Everything's getting crazier and crazier at work these days. And um, we want to push back hard against that.
0: Mhm and that's one thing you call out uh, in chapter 1 of your book where you say people often say that it's crazy at work so crazy it doesn't matter who you speak to it's as if the default response is i'm just so crazy so busy right now but why so crazy Oh man, there's so many reasons these days. Um, Technology has made work worse, not
1: better. Uh, Mm -hmm. More and more people are distracted by more and more things all the time, whether it's personal social stuff or business chat and instant messaging and all these things where people can just go and chip away at your time and your attention constantly. And there's this sort of expectation of immediate response. Uh, If Mm -hmm. someone sends you a message, you feel like you got to get back to them right away, which takes you off your game and whatever else you're working on. So that's one thing. Another thing is sort of the chasing of uh, growth, endless growth, at growth at all costs, that we must continue to grow our companies as fast as we possibly can. Well, that leads to people um, having to put in ridiculous hours, 60, 70, 80 hour weeks, um, mm-hmm. nonstop work on the weekends as well, and and the expectation that you can be available for the company whenever, because you believe in quote, the mission. And um, all these problems, I think, all, the, all these things that add up to problems, and actually, ultimately, cause people to feel like it's crazy at work and they're busy all the time yet they still have no time to do what they need to do it's just a constant mess it's really unfortunate
0: Mm -hmm. and you mentioned there that people are pouring 60 70 hours of work a week into um their work so i mean how many of these hours are actually spent on the work though i don't think very
1: many uh, and Mm -hmm. that's kind of the problem i think a lot of people are spending time being busy not necessarily uh Sort of on their own whim, either. I think a number mm. of people are pulled into too many meetings, too many discussions that don't really involve them, but they're required to be there. Too many interruptions all day long. People asking questions that they could figure out for themselves, and so people are 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 sort of spread too thin. And while they're busy all day long, they look at their, their watch at 4 o'clock, 4 or 5 o'clock, and they're like, wow, where'd the day go? I got nothing done today, even though I was busy all day. And so you wouldn't have that feeling if you were actually doing the work. If you were doing the work, you'd feel like by the end of the day, you're like, wow, that was a great day's work. I got a ton of stuff done. I made a lot of progress. Mm. So I think the problem is, is when, you, when you feel like you're busy and you have no time, but you're not making progress. And that's all too common these days. And I think it's really unfortunate and yeah. unsustainable.
0: No, I couldn't agree more. And I mean, it, it almost feels as if it's become a bit of a, a badge of honor as well for people to just uh, proclaim proudly that they're so busy that they can't get through their, their workload. It
1: has. So there's there's a few things that people are, are so proud of, unfortunately. There's that mm. just being busy is, is something people are proud of. Another thing is that people don't get enough sleep. They're mm. proud of the fact that they're sleep deprived, which is just a, a horrible thing in all realms of life, work, health, temperament, all these things. Um, And then, um, so yes, long hours and and not enough sleep. And people are bragging about that constantly. And it's just really unfortunate. And I think again, that, you know, um, at the end of the day, we're all humans and we, you cannot fight nature. Nature will always win. And we are, we're animals. We cannot go without sleep. We cannot go without rest. we actually don't even do very good work if we're tired. We, people talk about pushing, you know, 20, or i say like 12 hour days or whatever, like yeah. you're not going to be really very good for 12 hours. You might get mm-hmm. a few good hours in. So, you know, why would you put your time into things when you're not at your you know best effort? Um, so that's something I don't understand as well Is this, this obsession with hours when, when really you only probably have a few good hours a day anyway, to begin with.
0: Mm, yeah i mean a lot of the conventional wisdom around getting into flow and deep work suggests that you can perhaps only do about four to five hours max of in the zone kind of work where you're just uh churning out really high quality work and free of uh, any interruptions
1: yeah i mean that's been my experience as well i think um you know, while I work an eight hour day, there's probably half of it where I feel like I'm really into it, really getting into something. Mm. And the other half I spend, you know, uh, it's not really half and half, but I I, I spend on on other tasks that are not deep work tasks. They're just administrative things or things I have to check in on and that sort of thing. But if you don't get a good four hours to yourself really a day and hopefully contiguous time, although I know it's really hard for a lot of people, Mm. but if you don't get that time, you're just Putting more hours in isn't going to make up for the fact that you don't have those hours. You need to have the good hours, the good flow hours in order to really get a good amount of really good productive work done where you can make forward progress on something.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I remember reading a a report from uh, McKinsey, um, which was around executives and how much time they spend in flow. And they actually found that people that spend time in flow are up to 500% or five times more productive than when they're just engaged in shallow level tasks. It doesn't surprise me. Mm. seems like it
1: makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and I find that myself as well. Um, And one thing you mentioned there, Jason, uh, people are proud of being busy and also proud of not getting enough sleep. And it reminded me of a conversation I had about a year ago with Brad Feld on this podcast, um, the preeminent, I guess, venture capitalist. And he was saying that he had battles with depression because every day he'd have his alarm clock on at 5 a.m. and he'd get like six hours sleep, if that. But one of the biggest fundamental shifts he made in his life was to just wake up when he wakes up, when his body tells him, okay, you've had enough rest. And that's made a world of difference for him. Um, So this whole notion of using a lack of sleep as a badge of honor, it's actually quite dangerous as well.
1: It's extremely dangerous. And there's a book I'd recommend everybody read who's curious about this called Why We Sleep. Mm-hmm. it's It's a wonderful book that goes into the science. it's also it's very well written but also really easy to read um, even though it goes deep into some of the science. Um, it's fascinating and and there's nothing more important for your body really actually than sleep. People talk about exercise exercise is of course very important but you can get away without exercising for a little bit. You yep. cannot get away with not sleeping very much. You will fall apart in a variety of different ways and you're probably going to be the last to know because everyone else around you will be Like, wow, this guy's really being annoying. Like, what's his problem? And why is he so short-tempered? And why isn't he able to perform? You might think that you're doing fine, but everyone else Mm. knows you're not. Um but it affects every single system in your body and it affects everybody around you. And it's really, really dangerous. And that book really goes into detail and I highly recommend checking it out if you're curious at all about it. And also if you think that you're getting enough, you're like, I get six hours. That's plenty because my body only needs six hours. Like you're lying to yourself. It's not true. You know, you need to really read up on this. It's very serious. And everyone's so concerned about improving their performance. Like the best way to do it is just to get an extra hour of sleep. If you can, um, I've got two young kids at home. So sleep is harder for me, but, I just go to sleep earlier. I'm I'm at sleep. I'm I'm going to sleep now at like 8:30 at night, um, which is early. But you know what? I need the I need the rest. And if I have to get up at 5:30 in the morning, I, I have to go to bed early. And if I don't, I'm just going to be a wreck and a mess the next day, and not not you know in tune for everybody else I have to work with. So I yeah. highly recommend checking it out.
0: Yeah, we'll add that book to the show notes for our listeners. And I think in that book there, um, it says something along the lines of. Not being able to pay off a sleep debt overnight, and that say if you if you sleep five hours a night during the week, you can 't just have a big sleep on your Saturday night, you actually have to pay that off progressively over a number of days
1: that plus the fact that you can never actually fully pay it off mm. so if you if you lose sleep, you can never regain that sleep. Um, you can pay off. Uh, not really pay, actually you can never pay it off. Um, but what you can do is you can build up some more sleep debt in a sense or sleep credit, I guess you would say. Um, but you cannot pay off that debt once it's gone, it's gone and Mm. it's really serious. So yeah,
0: just a quick word from our sponsor and we'll be right back. One thing separates okay. Venture returns from great venture returns deal flow. Do you wish your firm had more of it? With just 2% of venture firms capturing 95% of returns, content is becoming essential to cultivating visibility, reputation, brand, and deal flow. Here at Sonic Boom, we specialize in crafting compelling content for venture capital firms. Find out more and lock in your free one-hour strategy call at sonicboom.vc. And now, back to the show. Yeah, and people ultimately are don't know what they don't know, right? I mean, you mentioned that there, you might think you're doing okay and it could be related to sleep. It could be related to nutrition, to exercise. Uh, people tend to normalize how they feel and they think they're doing okay. But the reality is if they actually worked on, you know, the... the um, the trilogy, if you will, of sleep, nutrition, and exercise—they would feel and perform much better. Not not only perform better at work, but also become much more grounded people who aren't snapping at everybody uh, every minute of the day.
1: So true. And I fall into the trap sometimes because if, if if my kid gets up early, like I, I just don't get enough sleep. And I I can now I've tuned myself or trained myself to notice these things about myself that I'm definitely I know my temper is going to be a little bit tight that day or short, I should say, um, and so I kind of keep an eye on that, so I'm just mm-hmm. thinking about it, more mindful about if I'm snappy for whatever reason, like I got to remember that I'm, I, there's, there's a good likelihood or a good chance that I will be a little bit more difficult today to work with, so just being self-aware and understanding yeah. that it's going to affect you. You cannot not be affected by this. You cannot power through it. You cannot be some superhuman. You cannot take some sort of supplement. None of that stuff matters if you don't get enough sleep.
0: Yeah. And on being self-aware, I mean, you've been building Basecamp now for about 19 uh, odd years. Uh, I mean, I imagine as a leader of an organization, you've had to work on becoming more self-aware during, during your journey with Basecamp.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a constant journey, you know, yeah. or, or constant challenge to be, I guess, more self-aware everywhere in your life, you know, relationships, work, business, whatever it might be. Mm. Um, and I, I think, you know, part of it is getting older, you start to pay more attention. Hopefully you start to pay more attention to, yeah. to, you know, what, what you're really like and what, what really moves you and what doesn't the whole thing. So I've, I've had to work on it for sure. And I'm still working on it and will always continue to have to be working on it. I think everyone, it's a, it's a good practice for everybody to, to pay attention to, to those things.
0: Yeah, Couldn't agree more. And, um, going back to, to the notion of uh, what's happening in, in the modern organization today, um, you, you've said that there is a, a trend of ever collaboration in the workplace. Now, You know, everybody likes to say that collaboration is a good thing, but um, having too many people on the bus can ultimately add a lot of complexity and slow down uh, a project significantly. I think there's research out there. There's, in fact, a a law called Brooks Law, which suggests that adding resources to a late software project makes it later. Uh, It doesn't speed things up at all. Um, So why is this trend um, manifesting itself in today's organization, and and how much of that do you you think has to do with the fact that people like to – perhaps outsource blame in certain types of organizations rather than take ownership? Hmm. Good questions. Um, I'm not
1: entirely sure why there's uh, this trend of Um, over-collaboration. I do think there is, certainly. As far as where it started, I'm not entirely sure, other than sort of this Idyllic like notion that you know more more heads are better like two heads are better than one so like mm. that would mean that ten are better than two probably is what people would think but I don't think that that's true you know I think what ends up happening is once you go past three or so people on something you need middle layers of management typically to monitor or to to sort of uh, manage the group of people, Mm -hmm. which which means that communication ends up being a bit more muddled. People aren't talking directly to one another anymore and they're going through a medium or a moderator of some sort and that blurs the lines and, and, and whatnot. So I just think smaller teams in most cases are better. They make better decisions. I think that they don't second guess as often either. I think sometimes, you know, when you're in a large group of people uh, collaborating on something there's a lot of second guessing because there's a lot of different opinions and mm. everyone wants their opinion to be considered and everyone wants to consider everyone else's opinion but at some point um, it, it it the large team does itself in and um, but I also think you know part of it too is that companies are larger and they're growing especially in the tech world I have a lot of companies that have, I think too many people frankly way too many people but when you have a lot of people you have a lot of different departments a lot of different Um, siloed skills and specialists. And so Mm -hmm. you tend to pull those people into meetings because you need that one specialty and that one specialty versus like having a generalist who might understand a few things. So you might be able to have one person represent three or four people before, but now you actually have four separate people doing those jobs. So you pull them all into the meeting, everyone's collaborating, too many people. And I think it slows things down. And like you said, adding more resources to a project typically doesn't make it speed up. It, It often slows it down just because more people involved slow anything down, like anything that we know of, except for brute force things. Like if you're trying to build a wall or something or build a building or build a whatever, like having more people physically moving bricks, that's of course going to speed things up. Hmm. But a lot of projects aren't that way. In fact, too many people get involved and it slows things down.
0: Yeah. And it's funny. I mean, in a past life going back about six years now, I um, spent some time at an investment bank in Australia and that was in the, the risk management capacity. And we would have these meetings where you'd literally have about 14 people sitting around the table for three hours, each going around the table one by one, sharing what um, piece of work they'd be uh, executing on during this project. And the rest of the time, you're literally just sitting there looking at your phone, looking at your email, staring off into space, and it just wasn't being challenged. And I challenged this notion and and. and s- uh, took it to um, the person who facilitated the meeting and said, hey, do we really need to have everybody there for the entire three hours? And the response was, well, it's just a necessary evil. And I just feel like in a lot of organizations, particularly your large corporate organizations, these uh, the status quo just is not challenged.
1: Yeah, it's not. Um, it's hard. Like it's hard to challenge status quo, of course. And, mm. and if you don't have the power – to make the change, it's unlikely someone's going to listen to you because, you know, the, the rules that are in place are the same rules that put the people who are in power in place. So why would they want to change the rules? Like why would yeah. they want to, you know, make so it's hard. And, all, and this is and true in politics, it's true in business, it's true personally, it's true, you know, in, in teams, it's true in all sorts of places. So um, yeah, I, I, I don't um, I don't envy <laughs> organizations that are stuck in a rut in that way. And i also don 't envy people who are in a position where they know it 's frustrating and terrible, but they can 't make the change. I think it 's a really difficult spot to be in, and I, and I do sympathize with with those people and empathize mm-hmm. with them too it's just it 's tough it 's tough to push a huge rock up up the hill when you, you can 't do it alone
0: yeah, definitely um, something I definitely uh, empathize with uh, so with respect to to that notion um, because I imagine a large part of this would come back to getting quality people. On the bus, because in certain organizations, if you haven't made the effort in recruiting the right people, then you're going to find people who actually like to spend time in meetings because it means they spend less time actually working. Um, or people who perhaps want to spend 14 hours a day at work because it means that they can then, um, hide away behind the veil of work to avoid confronting themselves in the real world and having to develop themselves as, as full people. I mean, what are your thoughts on people that just use work as an escape slash as an escape from, and meetings as an escape from work in general? Well, I think, you know, some people
1: have meetings or call meetings because they're managers and they feel like that's the only way to manage is to get a bunch of people in a room and ask, go around the table and ask questions, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, that's one way to do it. I think that that's really actually quite inefficient. People think it's efficient because you have eight people in a room and you can ask them all a question over an hour and you get a lot of quick answers. And, but I think that one hour meeting is not a one hour meeting. It's an eight hour meeting. You pulled eight people in for one hour, that's eight hours. Mm -hmm. So if you think about what you, what you traded, it's usually not worth the trade. That's a lot of time, um, that could have been spelled elsewhere. So some people though like to be in meetings because yeah, they don't have to Actively do the work. Others call meetings because that's they think that that's their job is to meet and discuss. Um, so there's different motivations for it. Um, I think at the end of the day, if 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 your company is paying attention to you know whether or not we're, actual forward progress is being made and work is getting done, it's pretty easy to tell who's not doing that and who's ducking and hiding. But again, some some people that is their job is to call meetings, and, and managers often are are those folks. And and so it's really frustrating because you get this this divide between people who have to do the work and people who are calling meetings. And, and oftentimes the schedules are different and the motivations mm. are different. And so people who are trying to get their work done are constantly being pulled off of the work by people who don't have to do the other kind of work. So they don't realize how disruptive it is to keep calling meetings all day. Um, yeah. So it's, it's tricky. It's a tricky balance between communication, collaboration, individual contr- contributions, management, all these things. So you just got to kind of find the right way. The way we do it at Basecamp is we don't really have meetings. What we have um, is basically asynchronous conversations using Basecamp, the product, where someone will post a message. For example, if I wanted to ask eight people their their thoughts on something, I would post a message in Basecamp, I'd write it up in long form, like in detail, Mm -hmm. present it, put it in Basecamp, and over the next day or so, I'd get responses from people um, on their own schedule, at their own time, and at their own pace, because unless I absolutely need an answer right now, I should not be making things urgent that simply are not urgent. Most things do not need immediate answers. Of course, in a crisis, you need an immediate answer and whatever. But the problem with meetings is that you're asking people in real time about stuff that they don't have to get back to you on immediately. In fact, if you just ask them and they got back to you tomorrow, that would be fine. And so that's how we do it. We slow things down, let people answer on their own time and their own pace. And that way, we're not pulling people off their work. So people, more people can get into a great flow state and then get back to you when they're ready to versus when you pull them off their work because you want to get an answer from them.
0: Yeah, Very and, uh, definitely, and, and I've seen uh, organizations use that, whether whether they're using Basecamp or whether they're just using even email or Slack, um, because really, it's up to you whether or not you want to check email every five minutes or maybe twice a day, um, and that way, you're responding to those uh, demands on your time at a time that suits you, and if it is something that hopefully. is super urgent, hopefully, yeah. hopefully, I mean, that's the relationship uh, people should uh, have with their email, but the reality yeah. in most organizations is that they do check email every five minutes, and it just... Absolutely annihilates any possibility of them getting into deep work. Totally. But part of the problem there is the expectation. So
1: if the organization mm-hmm. expects people, if the, well, The organization doesn't, but the people inside the organization, if the management, if if they expect people to get back to each other very rapidly, no matter when, whenever anyone asks for anything, then of course you're going to feel like you need to be checking your email every five minutes or your chat every five minutes or every, all the time, because the expectation is of immediate response. So it's more of a cultural thing. Um, At Basecamp, we don't expect anyone to get back to anybody immediately. In fact, I'd rather you wait to get back to me, unless, of course, it's a true emergency, and then I'll make that clear. Like, hey, there's something going on, I, I need to hear from you, or I'd, I'd re- contact you in a different way via phone, perhaps, instead. Um, but if the organization expects and demands immediate response, no matter what it is, whenever anyone asks, when anyone asks anyone for anything you're going to run into the situation where people feel like they have no choice but to constantly be tethered to email or whatever communication platform they use. And it's very unhealthy. And you're right, they can't get into a flow state. Mm. If you can't get into that, you end up working longer hours and less effective hours. And uh, you end up probably pushing your life aside to get more work done. It's just, it's not a sustainable path over time.
0: Yeah and you're absolutely right it comes down to expectations and I remember um reading uh the four hour workweek back in 2008 just when it came out and I was working at Ernst and Young at the time in a consulting role and uh Tim talks about this notion of uh well it's setting an auto uh, response to say that only check email, say twice a day at these hours. So if you don't hear from me, it's because of this reason. And I raised this with a partner and said, Hey, do you think this is something that would fly for us? And you could probably guess what the answer was. I mean, <laughs> absolutely not. You know, we've got to be responsive. If our client sends us a question, we need to snap back straight away. Otherwise they're probably going to go down the road and work with PWC or KPMG, right? So it was that fear factor that just kept people into working with these entrenched uh, ways of work, I suppose yeah and, and like i get it i get all that but the thing is like mm. to what end you know yeah it, like it, if
1: if you're saying like we need to get back to clients instantly no matter what mm. no matter what time it is otherwise they're going to leave then basically <laughs> they own you 24 7 if they own you 24 7 they're number one not paying you enough anyway to own you 24 seven. Second of yep. all no one should ever own you 24 second seven. Third of all Sometimes you just you just think that they expect an immediate response. Exactly. Maybe they don't. Maybe they're reasonable mm-hmm. people. And, and if they write you at 10 o'clock at night and you don't get back to them at 8 in the morning, they might be totally fine with that, as they should be, by the way. And if in the next morning you get back to them and go, hey, why? And they said, why didn't you get back to me last night? You said, because I was sleeping or because I'm with my family. Like, you need to establish boundaries. There's nothing wrong with that. And if someone doesn't respect your boundaries, then they're not the right client to work with anyway, flat out. Yeah. You cannot work with somebody who expects and demands everything from you on demand anytime you want. Like, you are not Netflix. You cannot be pulled in on demand and watch any show you want. That's just not how it works with human beings. So I think at some point, you got to say that's not the right client for us. But also, I wouldn't assume right off the bat that every client demands an immediate response. I think that's another uh, fallacy that a lot of client services firms get stuck in.
0: Oh, yeah. And couldn't agree more on that. And I do think it's probably a reflection of something deeper around a fear of uh, incompetence or something to that effect. I mean, if you're 100% confident in your abilities, that you're creating value for this organization, that you've developed a good relationship with the client, then you shouldn't be scared about them running off to your competitor, because you didn't respond within 10 minutes of them sending an email. Totally agree. Totally agree. Um, so, Jason, I mean, well, let's talk about Basecamp. I mean, you guys have been recognized as one of America's best small companies by Forbes uh, with, as of May of last year, $25 million, 25 million US dollars in revenue, just over 52 staff. Uh, you guys are based in Chicago, not, a, not in Silicon Valley, with staff in 30 different towns around the world. Now, earlier in our conversation, you were saying that a big part of the reason why organizations are struggling and why people are so, so busy is because they're chasing yeah, massive growth. Um, yeah, you've preferred to grow consistently and, uh, profitably with just 5% a year on year growth. Um, so you can enjoy the culture of a small business. I'd love to um, unpack that a little bit more. Sure.
1: So, um, I'll also say that all the numbers you cited are like, those are assumptions cause we don't, we don't publish our official numbers. Sure. Like okay. that. So I just want to kind of make that clear. Um, yep, of course. um, you know, our feeling is that like, I, I think every company ought to find their right size. This is mm-hmm. something you don't hear a lot about in business because business typically is grow, 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 grow. Um, and um – you know, I just feel like there's a right size for everything in life. You know, there's a right size for the amount of dinner you should eat every night. There's a right size for the amount of exercise you should probably do. Like you wouldn't say that you should just exercise nine hours a day. Like that's just like not <laughs> yeah. reasonable. And Everyone would know that's not good for you. So why is it that businesses should just grow as as hard and fast as they possibly can? I just don't buy it. So what we have basically settled into now, we have 55 people at the company today, or 54, we're about to be 55. Mm-hmm. That's kind of our right size. We're actually not hiring anymore after this particular role. In fact, we weren't hiring before, but somebody left. So we're filling the role, but we're basically like, this is the right size of our company. As far as growth goes, we'll just grow naturally and, 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 and carefully and thoughtfully versus trying to do the hockey stick, you know, yeah. exponential growth. Like because that would put too much strain on our culture, it would require us to hire a lot more people really quickly which we don't want to do. It would mean that we'd have to have a lot more than fifty five people which we also don't want to do um, and and we'd have a, an imbalance we'd have people who've been here for a long time and then like but we'd quickly be overrun by brand new people and I think that would damage the culture in a sense because I think cultures are, are better when there's a gradient, when there's a lot, of, you know, a good number of, of people have been around for a while and basically an equal number of new people. But if we just started hiring and hiring and hiring and hiring, we'd always be new people. And I think that's mm. really difficult for any team to, to deal with. Um, and, and ultimately, like, this is about the self-awareness point. We're going to go back to that, which is we just yep. know what we want. And David and I were the two owners. Like, we just want a company around this size. We've got over 100,000 customers that pay us every month for our products it's a wonderful business, very profitable. We're in Chicago. We're, you know, that's where we're headquarters. But like you said, there's people in 30 different cities around the world. Um, we just want to do things our own way. We don't want to follow anyone else's, uh, definition of success or what we should be doing. We are, um, by all uh, measures, extremely, um, happy with with how the business is going and successful and all the things you want to say and we've also just found like this is enough for us this is what we want to do and we'll still grow a little bit we grow a little bit here and there right we're not going backwards or anything like that but like even if we stood still like that'd be fine too like it's okay um all these things are okay i think it it would not be okay if we started falling backwards and started to you know lose customers and that whole thing like that wouldn't probably be okay Um, but technically like maybe it would be okay. Maybe it'd be okay too. If we were a smaller company, maybe that would be fine. Maybe we'd settle into a different thing where instead of having a hundred thousand customers, maybe we end up having 80,000. We're trending towards having more than we have now. But like, I'm just being hypothetical. Like what if we lost 20% of our customers? Like we might still be okay then too, you know, it's just got to figure out what would actually like, if the only way you're satisfied is constantly pursuing endless growth. Like at some point you're going to be very, very unsatisfied because companies do not grow at that rate forever. We want to be in business for a long time. We've been in business for 20 years. We'd like to be in business another 10, 20, whatever it might be. And so we have to come up with a sustainable model that we can see ourselves getting there. If we felt like we had to continually double every year or two, like we just, we wouldn't be happy. We wouldn't get there. We wouldn't want to be where we got or where we get to or where we end up. So Hmm. I throw a lot of things in there, but basically it's self-awareness, getting a sense of where, what you think is enough, what you think is the right size, being honest with yourself about that and not measuring up to what the industry wants out of you or what people expect. Where if people go, you only have 55 people. Oh, you're small. Like, yeah, good. We are small. And I'm, I'm proud of
0: that. Yeah. And I think that last point, um, around not following societies or say the startup ecosystems definitions of success, um, is such a, such a, Big profound point. Uh, I mean, you can take that and trace it back to, you know, Aristotle and Socrates and Seneca and philosophers from 2,000 years ago. Who used to say things like, "If you shape your life according to nature, you'll never be poor." But if you shape it according to people's opinions, you'll never be rich. And I mean, you've built an organization which is, you like you said, very profitable. Uh, You enjoy working there. You've got a team of 55 almost around the world. You guys are growing year on year. There's easy to be happy with that but society's conventions will say well you guys should be a hundred million dollar company or a unicorn and i know Basecamp has repeatedly turned down more than what i have gathered over 100 investment offers from venture capitalists and private equity firms which again flies in the face of that sort of convention when it comes to technology companies just raising more capital raising more capital let's go for series d e you know f g and become a unicorn whereas you guys have kind of realized hey we're quite happy where we are and i think that's such a departure from what we see on Mashable and TechCrunch uh, most days. Not only that, like, not only are we happy, but we would actively
1: be unhappy if we were mm. chasing those other milestones, let's say, chasing investment. We'd be doing things for other people rather than doing them for ourselves. And frankly, you'd be doing things for other people, not just other people, but you'd be you'd be out there making billionaires richer. And that's, like, to me, not that interesting. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, um, I, you know... I just think we we know who we are, we settle into what we want to do, and we're doing it our own way. We have no one to answer to but ourselves and our customers. And, you know, frankly, I think independence, true independence is highly underrated. Um, A lot of people, it's weird, too, because people are entrepreneurial who go and start businesses, and they do it because they want to build their own thing. But pretty quickly, if you start taking money from other people, you're not building your own thing anymore. You're building their thing. Mm. And, in fact, what you're building is a financial vehicle for them to generate a return. You're not really building a company anymore. You're building a financial vehicle. I don't want to do that. I want to build a company that's of course pays us well and pays our employees well, but the primary thing is not to cash out on it. That's not what we're building. Um, and I think a lot of people end up working for and building financial instruments versus companies that make something they're really proud of. Yeah. And I, I, I'll, I'll tell you what, I know how to juice our numbers. Like if mm-hmm. I want to juice our numbers, I could juice our numbers. I could hire a bunch of people and d- do a lot of top uh, top line growth and hire a bunch of huge sales force and be really aggressive. And of course we could grow our numbers and we can of course grow our valuation and of course do all those things. Right. If I wanted to play that game, like that's not a hard game to actually play if you have a decent business, but I just don't want to play that game because I don't want to be a participant in in the outcome.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I don't want to lose my business because someone else found that the return is ready for them to to cash in on. Therefore, my business is now a financial instrument, which they want to get out of, which means someone else has to get into, or I have to go IPO, then I have to answer the public markets. I just don't want any of that. I don't want that hassle in my life. It's not what I'm interested in.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And we say so many uh, startup founders today conflate raising capital, uh, particularly your early stage startups, uh, conflate raising capital with having made it when really that's just a bet that a venture capitalist has made on your business, um, hoping that it's one of the 10 investments that they'll make that will actually deliver the returns to cover all the losses. Totally. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's
1: actually one out of a hundred almost, right? Yeah. Yeah. They make it. So yeah, you're just a bet. You are a bet. I don't want my business to be someone else's bet. I'd prefer Mm. it to be my bet. Like ultimately it is of course a bet. Like and most businesses do fail. Most of them don't make it. And that's just the way that is. But I kind of want to live or die on on that, not on an investor's decision for when they think my company is ready for them to leave it, Mm. you know? And and, and that's just a weird, that's just a weird situation. I think it's not what I want to do. And I'm on the board of a couple of companies who've raised money. Like mm-hmm. I, I get it. I, it's just a different perspective. And, I, and I'm not out there to say that what I'm, what I'm saying on this podcast is what everyone should do. Mm-hmm. I'm simply talking about like, ultimately self-awareness, which is r- recognizing what do, you, what do you want for yourself and recognizing that there are other alternatives. Because if you just read TechCrunch and Mashable and these other sites, you think the only way forward is to go raise a bunch of money. That's all those sites cover. Um, there are lots of alternatives to, to, for how to run a business, how to fund a business. Um, and I just want to be one of those alternatives that people are aware of at the very least. But every, at the end of the day, people have to decide for themselves what makes sense.
0: Yeah. It just comes back to asking that question, like, why am I doing this and really being objective about the answer? Yes. Agreed. Um, so Jason, we've covered often a few of the characteristics that underpin what you call a calm company, such as, uh, you know, relatively manageable growth, uh, moving at a comfortable pace, you rarely have meetings, you work from anywhere, you have realistic deadlines. I mean, what are some of the other uh, attributes that underpin what a calm company is? I think a big part of is um, is our reasonable deadlines, um, mm-hmm. which a lot of
1: companies don't have. They'll have a deadline for something. And as they approach the deadline, the amount of work they're, need- they're asked to do increases, and so people pile in more stuff at the end, and that's just completely unreasonable and leads to a tremendous amount of stress, late nights, all-nighters, whatever it is to make the deadline, even though you probably won't anyway, and it'll get extended. So at base camp, we're always trying to make sure that we narrow as we go. So the further along we are in something, the less there should be to do. Um, mm. And that's probably true after like a week or two into something, because the first week or two, you're ramping up. But after that, like you need to be doing fewer things towards your goal versus adding more and more stuff in there. Because you'll always have more ideas. There are always more things to do. And if you just keep adding it on and, and, and layering it on top, like it's you're gonna make a lot of things very, very difficult on your on your team. So I think that's a key thing. Um the other thing is that our benefits at Basecamp are designed for people to enjoy outside of work. Um, a number of companies in our industry design benefits to keep people at the office longer. Yeah. So for example, they might have free dinners at the office. Well, that's not really about a free dinner. That's about like, stay late. Why don't you, you know, uh, at base camp before <laughs> we don't do those kinds of things. Um, some companies will shuttle people to and from work, which you could say is a good thing, but it's not a good thing. If the schedule, the shuttle schedule is seven in the morning to seven at night, like that's 12 hours, you know? So you got to look at those things. Um, so all of our benefits are designed for like increasing vacation, paying for people's actual vacations, not just mm, vacation time, yeah. sending them on vacations on our dime, 30-day um, paid sabbaticals every three years, um, fresh fruit and vegetables at home versus having like a big snack thing at the office. Instead, we send people food at home mm-hmm. um, for them and their families, those those kinds of things. Um, I think that, that pays a lot. Uh, that pays off a lot in terms of uh, achieving a calm company, um, versus the alternative, which is like keep keep, keep people off. It's like, for example, in our industry, there's a lot of talk about like having masseuses or getting a massage yeah. at the office, mm-hmm. and it's like, it's not relaxing if you're working and you go get a 15 minute chair massage, and then you have to come right back and hunch over your keyboard again. Like that's not actually. A relaxing moment like so we have a massage benefit essentially or a wellness benefit that's like outside the office like go truly go home or leave mm. or do this on a weekend or whatever when you really want to relax not like take a 15 minute break that's just not really a true re- relaxation it's like faux relaxation that doesn't make sense to us
0: yeah and and on that point i mean base camp you guys work 40 hour work week. And in the summer, it's just a 32 hour work week, um, which aligns quite well with that because obviously you're looking to get people out of the office. You're looking to create conditions where people can get into flow, can crank out high quality work in, you know, and enough of it in say four to five hours to the point where they don't feel rushed. Um, so having them. Go out of the office, whether it's to visit a masseuse or go to the gym or whatever the case may be, is obviously well aligned with your philosophies. Whereas in other organisations where they do rock these, you know, twelve-hour days because they feel like they need to do them to get over the line, uh, because of some of the various attributes that we've discussed, then you want to keep people in the office. So I imagine it would be much harder for, say, some of the organisations I've spoken about, like Ernst and Youngs of the world, where people are. Uh, in what you call a presence prison and they feel they need to be in the office until 9.00 PM in the evening to really push for, Hey, go out of the office. It's all good. Come back in a couple of hours. Once you, once you're rested. Yeah.
1: Um, it's, it's challenging. You
0: know, you Mm. know, the thing is, is that
1: the reason it's just, it's like it's not true that if you just stay at the office longer, you're going to get more work done. This is the thing that I think people just miss because, again, if, 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 the, if the office itself is not a productive place, and for many people it's not, um, then you're just there being busy again. And, if you, in fact, if you ask people, like, if you really need to get something done for work, where would you go? Very few people would say the office. Yep. Or if they did, they'd say the office at, like, 6 in the morning or, like, 9 at night when no one's around. Um, because they know that the office is not actually a place to go do the work. I mean, it has to be. Um, or you end up doing it at home or on the weekends, which you don't want to be, but offices typically aren't really designed that well for actually getting work done because they're loud, they're noisy. There are a lot of open office plans these days, which was kind of the hot thing. And it's still very prevalent. It's also very cheap for landlords and for business owners to do, which is why they end up doing it, but it's not really conductive or conducive for, um, uh, for real, you know, good, solid flow state style work. Yep. Now I understand not every job requires that necessarily, mm-hmm. but a lot of the jobs in our industry certainly do creative jobs: programmers, writers, you know, people who are have to really think creatively about the work that they're doing, including customer service, where you really have to think about what it's like to be that customer on the other end, and think about you know, think about them, um, put yourself in their shoes, understand what they're going through. Like, you can't be um, there can't be constant clutter and chatter and noise around you, otherwise you're not going to have a chance to think. And I think. Part of it, too, is if you actually ask people, when's the last time you simply had time to think at work? I'm not even putting a number of hours on it. I'm not saying like five hours. I'm saying like to really like sit down and think. Most people would say I haven't had a chance to actually do that in quite a long time. And I think that's really unfortunate.
0: Yeah. So on where work gets done, Jason, uh, you've mentioned earlier that you've got people working across 35 cities. Now I imagine, uh, using Basecamp will, would go a long way to facilitating outcomes with a distributed team. But I mean, how have you managed to navigate some of the challenges associated with having people work all over the world? You mean how to work remotely essentially? Mm -hmm.
1: Um, we kind of just, we kind of grew up with it basically. Um, and that we, um, I'm trying to think. It was our third, fourth, third or f- our fourth hire. Basically, yeah. was was my business turned out to be, an ultimately my business partner, a guy named David Hannemeyer Hansen. Right, and David lived in Copenhagen, and um, we were, I think, seven time zones apart at the time, and we just figured out how to work together that way. There was no choice. It wasn't like we had a choice. It was just like. I liked him. We worked together well. We, we communicated well. Let's work on a project together. It turned out it worked out pretty well. And then our next hire was a guy in Utah, which was another, you know, a couple of time zones away from, from me. Um, David is still in Copenhagen at the time. Eventually he came to Chicago, but now he lives in California. So we're apart again. And we just sort of grew up that way. I think it is difficult if you have a local company and all your your um, uh, practices and procedures and, and processes and stuff are, are all built up on getting people in the same room together it's difficult then to make that first remote hire or even imagine that people could work remotely. But when you grow up that way, and that's the only way you've known how to really work, um, it, it just it's second nature. It becomes really natural. Um, yeah. I mean, you and I are having a, I don't know how far apart we actually are right now. Mm. Quite far, um, Quite I imagine.
0: Far. <laughs> yeah. so, a couple um, of flights, probably about 20 hours worth of flying. Yeah. But <laughs> so I don't know how many miles
1: that is or kilometers, but it's a long way, right? And but you know we're able to talk and like we could work on a project together right now. Like we mm. cert- we are in fact having right? a conversation yeah. about something or recording a podcast. Like mm-hmm. you know some people would think that you. I've been on podcasts for example where they have to fly in and record you locally, and I'm like, why? Why can't we just do Skype? Mm. And they just like they can't fathom that you could do something like this, or they'd say the quality isn't as good, and they'd say like it's certainly good enough. Like it's really quite good, in fact, these days. Like so, there's a lot of I think myths and tales people tell themselves about how you couldn't possibly do something like this remotely, but I absolutely believe you can. And and we've, we've shown that to be true. And a lot of companies are showing that it's totally possible.
0: Yeah. And then, I mean, you also take into account the opportunity cost of, I mean, for example, taking your, uh, podcast hypothetical, I mean, for me to fly over to Chicago, it's going to take up 20 hours of my time just getting there, then flying back and being disconnected from the web and not being able to do a bunch of work that I could have otherwise done. I mean, the cost of doing that is phenomenal, but this is something that maybe doesn't show up as much in smaller organizations, but in your large, say, uh, S&P 200 companies, this happens all the time where people are just getting flown all over the country for one-hour meetings when they could just get on a freaking FaceTime call if they really had to and have that conversation. I know. It's super wasteful. Now, I'm not someone who's going to say like FaceTime
1: or true FaceTime, you know, face-to-Face time is Yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course it is, right? Of course mm-hmm. it is. Um, and, and occasionally it's really valuable and occasionally there is no substitute for it. But mm-hmm. all the time, in fact, I think it's actually quite worse. Um, all the time means it's really easy to distract each other. It's really easy to pull people into meetings that don't need to happen. It's really easy to tap someone on the shoulder and pull them away from their work. When everyone's very close to each other, it's really easy to interrupt each other. It just is. And I think that um, at some point it's really important to, uh, I mean, give people plenty of space and having a actually physical space between people and not necessarily an office space, but I mean like physical distance, Mm -hmm. it, puts people in the position of actually having a lot more time to themselves to do their work. Um, And so what we found is that, you know, when David actually ended up moving to Chicago and we started working in the same office together, we got less work done because we were just, it's so easy just to bother each other, you know? (laughs) Um, And then when he moved away, we ended up getting more work done again. And you just see the truth is, it's like when you're far apart, but you have a few hours of overlap, that's great. Because then you can go high bandwidth when you need to for a few hours. But for the most part, most of your day should should not be in that high bandwidth type of communication. It should be very, very so- like solitary in a sense. I don't mean like isolated, but you should be able to focus without worrying about someone coming and tapping you on the shoulder or pulling you into something you don't need to be involved with.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's the uh, peril of a lot of these open plan offices that you know look cool on the surface, but in terms of getting into the flow state and getting some real work done, they're just they they sabotage a lot of organizations sort of productivity in many ways and now they're kind of reverting back to what they had before and setting up all these little private offices along the perimeter of these buildings so people can actually get some privacy yes totally so yeah i agree absolutely agree um so jason i mean your book is split up into several sections uh uh, namely defend your time culture process Uh, i wanted to just explore defend your time and unpack some of the techniques that you, um, practice at base camp to defend your time? I, I mean, you've talked about things like calendar Tetris, uh, saying no, uh, what are some of the other things you do, uh, to defend your time?
1: Well, yeah, one of the key things is, um, this idea that at base camp, we cannot see each other's calendars. Mm -hmm. which is rare in the business world. Most companies have shared calendars, right? And you can go and request a meeting or get on someone's calendar or whatever. You cannot get on my calendar. I cannot get on yours because you can't see mine and I can't see yours. And that's intentional. I don't want it to be easy to take other people's time. And when you have a calendar that you can see and basically people's time is just like broken up by slots, it's really easy to just click on the screen, take an hour, send a meeting request. Yeah, technically they can deny it, but very few people do. And all of a sudden you've just taken an hour of someone's time. Um at base camp, if you want to get if you want to talk to someone or have a meeting with someone or whatever, you have to go ask them. Like you have to ask them for their time. You say, hey, mm-hmm. hey, uh, hey Jonas, hey Bill, whatever, hey Sam, um, hey Lauren. I, are you free at three o'clock on Wednesday? I would like to go over something with you. It's an ask. And then they have they're the, the, the responder is in control. They're like, Well, mm-hmm. um, I don't have time or I'm not free or whatever, versus like you could say that a calendar could represent that, but it rarely does, um, because any free time you see, people can just snap it up, and then before you know it, your day is full. And I, I'd always ask people to look at their own calendar and say, how many of those things on your calendar did you put there, and how many things did other people put there? And if other people are putting things on, on your calendar, they're essentially taking your time away from you. And if they're taking your time away from you, what do you have? Mm-hmm. All you have is time to, to, to get your work done. So. So, um, by not sharing calendars, we help each other protect each other's time and make it a little bit harder to get, to get on someone's schedule, essentially. Um, that's one way. Another way is, again, I talked about this a bit earlier, which is that culturally there is not an expectation of immediate response. Mm -hmm. Um, it's different with, um, customer service. We try to get back to customers within a few minutes. Um, but we have a lot of people who are dedicated to that and that alone. So that's a different story. Um, but internally, if someone has a question, like they'll write it up and they'll send it to you and you get back to them when you're ready. Um, if you don't get back to someone in five minutes, they're not going to then text you. They're not going to then IM you and they're not going to then call you. Like the expectation is they'll get back to me when they're ready. And if they haven't gotten back to me, it's because they're busy or something else that's more important to them. And they'll get back to me when they're ready. So that's another thing. It's more, again, more of a cultural thing. Mm, yeah. um, and then the tools we use, um, we don't use chat as a primary method of communication. I think chat Slack, those kinds of things—they they have mm-hmm. their place, but they're terrible um, tools for the pr- as the primary method of communication. Um, I think most communication in an organization should be asynchronous, not real time. Real time turns everything into an ASAP moment, into the expectation of immediate response. It's too easy. I much prefer um, email style. Uh, we don't use email internally. We use Basecamp. Basecamp has more of a it has chat, but also has a. Long form, traditional message board, message forum style communication where you mm. write something up and people get a notification and they can respond when they're ready uh, in time versus the expectation of like an immediate response, like a text might be. So, most things we, we communicate internally that way and that frees up people's time because they don't feel the pull, the constant pull to be paying attention to a dozen real time conversations at once.
0: Mm. And I imagine in that case, I mean, you talked about setting up meetings. Would people rather than i mean you mentioned that they will actually go over and speak to the person but in some cases would it make more sense for them to just log a message on basecamp so that they're not actually being interrupted if they are in, in flow yeah totally and that, yep.
1: when i when i said like they would actually ask someone i actually mean virtually in most cases yep. they would yep. write a message yep. and and um, and it would be it'd be like a, a human message it'd be a question versus like a, a calendar invite through a system is so dehumanized it's like you know, you get this invite through the system and it's like, yes, no, you know, like <laughs> those are your options basically, or maybe I think is sometimes another option versus like, yeah. Hey, are you free at three? The answer can be a lot of different things. It's not yes or no. It's like, well, it depends. Like what, what do you have in mind? You know, like there's a bit of a negotiation then. I think that's yeah. a much more, it's a much friendlier human way to, to discuss, uh, you know, a moment versus yes, no, maybe, you know?
0: Mm. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. And I guess now we're saying the proliferation of a lot of uh – Calendar scheduling tools as well, um, like Ask Amy, uh, calendly.com which does at least give you uh, the liberty of saying, hey, I'm free between, say, 9 to 12 on Monday, Wednesday, Friday for meetings, and that's it. So here's my calendar. Schedule a time if you like. Here's a 15-minute slot so that they don't, by default, schedule 60 minutes, which seems to be the default in a lot of large organizations. And therefore, you have a little bit more control over over your calendar as well insofar as setting up meetings is concerned. Yes, Exactly. I'm with you on that completely. Awesome. Um, So, Jason, I wanted to just double click on something you talk about in the process uh, section of your book, which is commitment, not consensus. Uh, What's all that about? Commitment, not consensus.
1: So um, this is kind of an idea from Jeff Bezos, um, which is that... um, uh, he talked about this one of his shareholder letters, which is
0: mm-hmm.
1: we should not be out there seeking, trying to seek consensus on any decision. A lot of organizations are consensus driven and that they need to get a bunch of people around a table to agree on something before they're going to make yeah. progress on it or move mm-hmm. forward on it. Mm-hmm. Um, we we just don't look at things that way. Um, we want everyone around the table to put in their two cents um, and, and you can debate it, discuss it, you know, at, at, but at some point it's up to somebody to just make a decision. And then it's up to the other people to get on board. Um, so you, you can disagree and commit. Basically the idea is that um, uh, you, know, you could, you could make your voice heard and a decision can be made. And then after that you're expected to commit you're so You could say like, like I really disagree with the way we're going to do this, but I'm on board. I'm here to help you get this done. And I will hope this is the best thing we've ever done. You know, I hope that I'm wrong essentially um, yeah. versus the amount of energy it takes to try to, to persuade, you know, it could be 10 people to agree with you. It's just not worth the effort to do that. the The better thing is to have the debate, someone make a decision, and then everyone get on get in line. Essentially, after that, the decision has to be explained. Um, but that's just that's the way we do it. And that's the way we go. Otherwise, like you're just dragging and you're putting in so much energy and it's a war of attrition until like people just end up giving up and agreeing. I just don't want people to give up and agree. I want people to feel like they they put their word in and they they made their case and someone disagreed and that's just the way it is. And now it's time to go. Let's all get behind this.
0: Yeah, yeah. And um, one other thing uh, Bezos talks about in his uh, shareholder letters is this uh, type one V type two decisions with type one being reversible decisions and type two being irreversible decisions. And if it's reversible, just... Move forward, and if you make a mistake, you, hey, you can fix that. The problem is in many organizations where we treat all decisions as irreversible. So we're always calling, say, a steering committee meeting and getting multiple heads on the bus, and it just slows us down to a T where we don't get anything done when we spend all our time in meetings. Totally, I think that's a great point too. Um, so yeah, it's, it's it's those it's those things
1: that you know I, I do believe in, in a vigorous debate and disagreements of always going to be there, and the whole thing, and you, like. But at some point someone's got to make a call and it's up to that person. And the way we do it in, internally is we have this idea in every project we're working on we, we're, there's a, what we call a point person. We don't mm-hmm. have project managers. So our teams are small. We always have three or fewer people typically working on something. And one of those people at the beginning of the project is assigned the point and um, everybody in the team knows that they're the point person and yep. the point person, their job is to make decisions um, they have the final say and, um, people can argue with them. People can debate with them, whatever. But at the end of the day, they have, they're the ones who are on the, on, uh, they're, they're the ones who are on the point to make the final call. And then mm-hmm. it's the, the rest of the team understands that if that person's made the call, then that's the direction we're going in versus this endless infighting or the amount of effort it takes to get everyone aligned when you don't really need to get everyone aligned. You just need everyone to understand why a decision was made. And then we we move forward and you win some and you lose some. And that's just like the way it goes versus trying to win them all. it's just, is unreasonable, and the amount of effort expended is just not worth it.
0: Yeah, and I think it's also about people rallying around the decision once it's been made, regardless of whether or not they were uh, advocates of it or not previously. Uh, but once that decision is made, hey, we're going to have a much more likely, we're going to be way more likely of having a positive outcome if everybody rallies around it and is aligned. Agreed. Um, so Jason, real quick question. I imagine you have turned off notifications across your phone and your desktop.
1: Yeah. I don't have notifications on my desktop at all. <laughs> like desktop, you mean like the ones that come in from the side, like those, yeah, I don't have any of those yeah. um, on my phone. I'm pretty much almost always in do not disturb mode. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I have a few people that I let through like for emergency, like, uh, it's kind of the emergency list where they're not, it's not really an emergency, but like my wife will get through and things like that if I need to talk to her during the day, that sort of thing. But other than that, I'm not notifications driven. I, I, I don't want to be pulled into things. Um, I will check things when I'm ready to check things and if something is a, a huge, massive, urgent emergency, like I will hear about it some other way. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm not I'm not like constantly trying to, to to chase the dot. Essentially, is what you you could you could say people who are notifications driven are always looking yeah. at that red dot and trying to get to yeah, yeah.
0: that sort of thing. Yep, are, are responding to a Pavlov's bell. Yep. <laughs> so, Jason, look, we are almost out of time, but uh, it's time for our three-question lightning round. You've left our audience with a hell of a lot of value bombs on the topic of getting more shit done at work, and um, I'll add sh- links to the to the book in the show notes for our listeners. But um, question number one: I'm not sure how this will fly, given that you've been running Basecamp for 19 years. But you can just tell me that the answer is Basecamp, if you like. But if you could work for any other organization at any stage of the company lifecycle, Jason, who would it be and why? I. That's a great question. Um...
1: I would probably want to work for a. Hmm, I've got two thoughts actually. If you don't mind, uh-huh. um, I've never worked for an extremely large company. I really have zero desire to do so, but I am curious mm. about what it's like. Um,
0: I, th- I think it would last
1: three months, Jason. <laughs> maybe, maybe. But I'm sort of curious. Um, and then the other thing is like a really, really, really small business that knows every single one of its customers. One of the things that 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 is unfortunate about our business is that we have over a hundred thousand customers who pay us. And there's no way for me to know them all. But I I have a friend of mine who owns a small grocery store down the street from where I live. And, you know, a customer walks in the door, he can go, Hey Jim, Hey Bill, Hey Lisa. Like Mm. he knows his customers. And I think it'd be really cool to be in a business that actually knows every single one of their customers by by first name. I I think that would be cool. I don't know what business that would be. It doesn't even matter to me, but like conceptually, I think that'd be a really neat place to be
0: yeah i think it would also uh improve the wellness and g- general happiness levels of people i mean relationships are a big part of happiness and if you have that relationship with your customers and you're actually creating value in their lives i mean it can only be a net good agreed um so question number two jason is if you could ask anyone a question dead or alive who would it be and what would you oh. ask
1: <laughs> man um How about this? Mm -hmm. Can I change the question a little bit? (laughs) Oh, (laughs) I I don't know. This has
0: never been done before.
1: (laughs) Go for it, mate. I'd rather like, I'd like to watch someone work versus ask someone a question. Ah. (laughs) I I would like to watch um, uh, probably um, Nikola Tesla. Mm. Um, I've always been fascinated by him. Um, I would just love to be able to watch him work on something just to see... I've always been fascinated with, with watching people work and how they approach problems and how they think about things and how they do stuff. So for me, the question would be a silent question, essentially. I would just observe. I'd like, so I'd love to observe. I'd love, So that maybe the question would be, could I watch you work for a day? Like, that would probably be the question.
0: Yeah, no, that's yeah. cool. Um, I imagine this wouldn't be during his latter days when he was basically holed up in a little apartment surrounded by countless doves. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> Probably not. Um, Like your last question, Jason, and it more or less builds upon a lot of the stuff that we've discussed today, but do you have any sort of daily practices, rituals, routines that help you firing on all cylinders? Uh, Sleep
1: really is the most important one. I'm very... become extremely careful and protective about, about my sleep, which is why I have to go to bed early. Cause my kid gets up early and he gets me up in the morning. So, so sleep is number one. Um, I'm also, I, am very careful about eating and exercise. I, I, if I don't exercise, I, not every day, I, I, I'm, you know, usually three to four times a week, I, I get really good workouts in, Um, Mm -hmm. that's enough for me, but if I don't, I, I, I'm not good. I get a little bit jittery. I I don't feel right. So that's important to me, but it's not about a particular routine either. Like I can go for a long walk. I can go for a run. I can ride on the bike for a bit. I can lift weights. Like, I don't, it's not a, you know, dictated routine, but I just need Mm -hmm. to do something. I need to move. I need to move around. Um, Otherwise I, 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 I don't function as well.
0: Yeah, 100%. I, yeah. I find if I skip more than one day or if I skip more than two days, uh, definitely like my mental state, uh, yeah. just everything just feels sluggish and I'm just generally not a nice person. Uh, well, not, not as nice as I normally am, particularly going into the office. So getting that workout out of the way in the morning just changes my perspective of the day. And also I think there's something to be said about the discipline piece. Like, I don't know about when you train, Jason, but I find if I get up at, say, 5.30, 6 in the morning, whatever it is, and smash out even the 30-minute workout, then that sort of overcoming that hump, that adversity, that voice in your head that says, hey, just go back to bed, you've kind of conquered that, and you take that attitude with you throughout the rest of your day. Yes, exactly. Awesome, Jason. Well, thank you so much. You've been an awesome guest. Our audience can pick up a copy of uh, your book on Amazon as well as your previous book, Recode. Um, They can find out more about Basecamp at Basecamp.com. Hit you up on Twitter at Jason Fried. Uh, Watch your TED Talk uh, on Why Work Doesn't Happen at Work from 2010 over at TED.com. And follow your blog on Medium at Jason Fried. Have I covered all the bases there? We're all good, man. Thank you very much. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. That's a wrap. If you like what you heard, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you listen to it and share it with a colleague or friend. Venture Backed was brought to you by Sonic Boom Media, a content agency helping VC firms generate better deal flow. Head over to sonicboom.vc to learn more and sign up to our fortnightly newsletter for more podcast episodes and venture insights.